Well, welcome to the Values Driven Productivity Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Mankin, and the purpose of this podcast is to help you make meaningful progress on things that matter. In today's episode, a conversation with Jeremy Utley, the Director of Executive Education at Stanford's D School, about what it looks like to value design thinking as you look at organizing your life around what matters. I'm thrilled about this conversation and can't wait for you to hear Jeremy's wisdom. Design thinking is a popular topic right now. A lot of people are talking about it and its implications on organizational culture and innovation and solving problems. And Jeremy Utley is on the forefront of this conversation. He is the director of executive education at Stanford's D School, which if you want to see something really awesome on the internet, go to the D School website. It is a special place. They are bringing together students from all kinds of backgrounds and disciplines to collaborate and learn about creativity and design thinking and how to use design thinking to solve problems in the world and in their own lives. And in Jeremy's role, he's helping organizations and professionals take design thinking principles into their spaces of influence and solve problems. But he's also helping students use these principles to consider their lives and their futures. And so I know there's something in this conversation for you, and I know that you're going to have some takeaways, tangible takeaways of action steps you can immediately take in your life to use design thinking um, to organize your life around what really matters and the things of importance. And my favorite, one of my favorite parts of this conversation is towards the end when we talk about the intersection or as, uh, as Jeremy corrects me to say, uh, the subjection of design thinking into our relationship with God and what it means to be fully surrendered followers of Jesus while using design thinking principles in the world. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jeremy Utley. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for taking time to to have this conversation. And I want to just start with the definition of design thinking. How How are you defining design thinking and why are you personally so passionate about it? Uh, so design thinking, I would say, simply put, is a set of tools and mindsets to um, identify the right problem to solve and um, test ways to solve it in order to uh, improve uh, lives of people that you're seeking to serve. Um, the reason that I'm passionate about it is uh, it really positively impacted my life. I was in business school about 10 years ago, and I came across some early uh, course offerings at the D School, and I was really delighted. I, I, I came from a background where I thought I would um, it was one's lot in life to dislike work. Um, I don't know why I thought that. I, I disliked my job. Um, previously, I disliked my major. So everything that I was good at, I didn't really like. And so I just figured, I guess, um, if you're really good at something, you're probably not going to like it. 
And so one of the things that was interesting, but you got to do it, you know, for the rest of your life. So one of the things that was interesting for me is when I came across this design thinking stuff, it wasn't soft, meaning it was still tough to do, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And that was, that, that was a marked change for me because most of the stuff that was tough to do, I had not enjoyed, you know, like whether it's doing finance calculations or whether it's generating a deck for a client or something, none of that was very fun. But when I started doing design work, it was still really challenging, uh, but it was really invigorating. And I ended the challenge um, really excited and curious rather than drained. And so I would say I was kind of patient zero, or not patient zero really, I'm probably patient, you know, several thousand, but the reason that it matters to me uh, to teach other people these things is because it's really impacted my life positively, and I um, that was given the opportunity and the platform to share with others, so I feel like it's a great thing to share. And your your bio on the Stanford website says that you are, and I'm quoting here, dedicated to helping others along the same path to becoming a designer and that you help people change their deeply ingrained behaviors and discover that it is possible for them to make a difference. So I'm wondering about what are some of the deeply ingrained behaviors that you had to change in your own life to more fully adopt design thinking principles? Uh, Let's see. Good question. Um, well, <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Uh, I was never much of a group uh, worker, group project kind of person. <laughs> uh, I saw people as impediments, really. They just kind of slowed me down. So if I had to study for a test, it's like people would be doing study groups, things like that, and I would just say, forget it. Uh, and I'd work by myself because I kind of had a lot of confidence in myself and a lot of trust in my own ability, and I knew what I needed to get done. And there were, you know, kind of very few times that I felt it was necessary to interact with another person. Um, so that's pretty, I would say, design thinking is a pretty big shift to, to kind of humbly acknowledge I have a fraction of the expertise or background that is useful to solving whatever challenge we're confronting. And so not only do, do I need others, but Others actually amplify my own contribution, meaning um, the contributions that I can make are actually way better in the context of and complemented by others' backgrounds and expertise uh, than they would be by themselves. So for me, that was a pretty big shift to move from kind of being more of an island myself to um, welcoming and then eventually actually seeking out more kind of radical collaborators with radically different backgrounds. Yeah. And you've taken this work that you've done in your life and the teaching that you're doing and you're applying it into companies in a consulting capacity. And before we focus in on your teaching, I'm curious if you would be able to give an example of how you're practically helping companies implement design thinking into their day-to-day operations. Yeah. I mean, it's similar to, uh, being a Christian, right? It starts with yourself. It starts very personally. So, um, just, just like, you know, what does it mean to live out your faith at work? Well, it means first and foremost that the Lord is Lord of your life and the Lord of your work personally. And it's long before there's ever something outward 
it's inward and a, it's a kind of a ruling dominant reality. I think same is true if an organization wants to be innovative, it actually starts at an individual level. And if they want to make innovative things, it actually starts with the inputs um, of the people, the attitudes, the actions, modes of interaction. And so when we try to help folks think about um, you know, uh, generating innovative products and services, we're really focused on personal behavior, really, and um, helping people show up differently or be aware of the um, what the most helpful contribution they could bring to the team might be at any given moment in their team's process. And it's, it's interesting because you work on the, the large scale level with companies and organizations, but as I was looking through even the classes that you teach, the class, the transformative design class really caught my eye and I was reading through the course description and, uh, it says in, in that course description that capabilities have displaced values too often. So when you think about teaching a class like that, and you're starting with, with this idea that capabilities have displaced values, what does that mean <laughs> exactly? And um, what do you hope that students ultimately gain from a class like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about that as kind of the Ricky Williams syndrome. You remember the old Texas Longhorn oh, yeah. you know, running back who... Yeah, he, he hated playing football, <laughs> basically. So what it came down to later in life, I think. Um, but he's, he's miserable. Um, but because he was good at it, he thought he had to do it. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the conversation. It's, it's are, are my capabilities what determine what I do, or does what I value and what I care about determine what I do? And, they're, and those aren't always aligned. And um, helping students start from a different point you know, if, uh, if, if, if somebody's a computer scientist, you know, and they're programming, and if they start from, well, if they start from the question, what can I program, that may not yield the best uh, life or the, or the most fulfilling and enriching path for them. But they start with, what do I care about? And, you know, what are my, how, what implications do my values have upon that? Um, and, or sorry, say it differently. If they start with the question, what do I care about? And then what are the implications of my skill sets and capabilities upon that thing that I care about? Um, they can get to a much better place. So uh, for us, I think the ultimate goal of the class, really, I mean, to say it simply, is people who see themselves as agents uh, rather than as consequences or, or a cause in the matter, to borrow a phrase from my co-professor, Bernie Roth, seeing yourself as a cause in the matter, not as an effect. So seeing that you have a role to play in the circumstances that you're in, and you're at the very least, you choose how you respond, and, and really not accepting kind of the given as given necessarily. Most of the things in our lives are, we can change, we can affect in some uh in very meaningful ways by behavior change. And so helping students see that. You know, one of, one of the biggest mental shifts, for example, is the difference between try, the state of mind which says I'm trying to do something and the state of mind which is doing it. You know, kind of Master Yoda said, there's no such thing as try, there's only do, or something to that effect. But the, um, the, the rub is 
a lot of people don't know that there's a difference there, and they're merely trying to do something, but they're telling themselves they're doing it, right? And so it's the challenge is when you don't know you're in the wrong state. It's actually fine. Like sometimes trying is really fun. Like trying to learn how to surf can be really fun. But uh, or tr- there's all sorts of things that not doing it's okay. But doing is just kind of a fundamentally different state of being. And so for a lot of students, we're helping we're helping illuminate where they're actually where they've been telling themselves they're doing, but they're really just trying. It's totally vague. It's, it's kind of like a. Uh, it's unclear what that means. But to use an example, somebody might say, I hate that I'm always late, and I'm always trying to be on time, but I'm never able to be on time. Well, typically they aren't actually um, giving the right amount of valence to that effort. And so if you say, okay, do, do you want to not be late anymore? You know, you say, and there's a lot of pipe dreams. Yeah, it'd be great to not be late, but if you actually set your intention and say, I, I want to be the kind of person who's not late anymore. And then you give it the proper attention. Uh, that's something that can change very easily, actually. And many of the things that we dislike in our lives, we end up giving reasons for, you know, I'm late because I got that phone call. I'm late because my kids, you know, da-da-da, whatever it is. Um, but when you start to see that that reasons are actually just projections, you know, of your self-image, what you want people to think. I mean, if you examine, it's a really fun exercise one time, is the next time you've got to give a reason for something, which is usually an excuse or justification for a behavior other than the one that you want, if you examine the reason, the reason you choose, it has more to do with what you want the person you're speaking to to think about you. Uh, It has more to do with what you want them to think about you than it has to do with objective reality. because the reality is, you know, say I'm late to a meeting, right? I can say that traffic was crazy and everybody is understanding. But if I say, sorry, you know, I did email 15 minutes longer than I should have because I was really hoping that there wouldn't be any traffic, then that doesn't sound very cool. And so um, recognizing that a lot of – that the, the tendency to give reasons is uh, evidence that I'm not giving attention to something, I can decide if I, if I want to be the kind of person who gives reasons for stuff. For me, I've decided as much as possible, I actually, I want to do what I say I'm going to do. And if I can't do it, I want my action to speak for itself. And so, you know, simple practice I take on and a simple practice that a lot of students take on after this class is just being aware. Every time you give a reason, you can say to yourself, let's at best, it's a partial truth. If if you aren't comfortable saying it's a lie, you know, at least tell yourself it's a partial truth. Um, the reason you give a reason, I mean, the reality is the reason you didn't do whatever is because you didn't, uh, you know, attend to it enough. You didn't give it enough effort. Um, and if you become aware of that, I mean, for me, I've seen it can really change my behavior. If I start. You know, and then you start refusing to give reasons in, in a way. You say, you know, you know, for example, somebody emails saying, hey, can I come see you at D school? If you say, sorry, I'm really busy, you'd be amazed how flexible people can be. They'll find any time, oh, you're busy on that day? We can come this day, right? Um, if the reality is you just don't want to, you know, host somebody, 
what I found is the better approach is to not give a reason and just say, sorry, I can't do it. So if I say, sorry, I can't do it because they find a way around all my reasons. If I say, sorry, I can't do it, most of the time I just get, oh, thanks so much for your consideration. You know, have a great day. So anyway, all that say, uh, that's kind of a little bit down a rabbit hole, but the idea of being a cause and being an agent, seeing that there's a difference between trying and doing um, examining one's language, things like, you know, giving reasons, things like, I mean, even simple things, you know, I'd love to go, but, you know, but all of a sudden negates. Have you noticed anytime you use the word, but whatever preceded, but is totally negated. You know, I'd love to go to dinner with you, but all of a sudden you just, you just cross that out in your mind, right? You don't hear that. I'd love to go. Now you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. But if I say, I'd love to go to dinner with you and I'm busy tonight, then we go, oh, okay, well, let's, um, let's work on it. You know, those are two things that aren't necessarily in conflict. Um, and so, so working with students to kind of examine their language, uh, like when they say things like, I have to, you know, I have to do my homework. That's a really disempowering position to take if you think that you have to do stuff. But if you say, I want to, it's actually incredibly uh, power, uh, empowering. Um, and the reality is that all the stuff that we do in life, we want to do. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. And, you know, students always try to come up with counterfactuals. Like they say, well, I have to breathe. Well, no, you don't. There are people who make the decision not to, you know. Um, and so we, we try to illustrate in part of the class how even the language that we use can have a really big impact on our outlook and the attitude that we take. And just rooting those things out, we try to do it in a very experiential and practical way where um, students have a chance to kind of examine, you know, their reasons or examine their language and then, you know, um, distill principles or reflect um, what, that, what that teaches them about how they're approaching their life. And ultimately, the goal is to come out of the class with a much stronger sense of agency and choice and empowerment than when they started. Because ultimately, I don't want to. I don't want to um, prescribe somebody's values. I want them to um, to live a life that matters to them and that's fulfilling to them, rather than you know saying what matters to me and trying to get people to, on page with that. A big part of the class when you talk about moving people to change behavior is is prototyping, and it's a concept that's used in design thinking at large, but also. Practically in this class, you encourage students to prototype. And so for people who don't know what prototyping is, maybe you can start by just defining what that is and then speaking specifically to somebody listening, listening right now to this conversation, how, how can somebody use this concept of prototyping to make changes in their life, to make progress on things that they claim to care about? So the notion of prototyping is basically it's, uh, creating experiments. So if you have a premise, a hypothesis, I, you know, I think that doing X will Y. Then you, prototyping is basically testing that premise, saying, okay, let's X and see if it Ys. So, you know, I think that yelling at my mom will, you know, get me in trouble. I think that spanking my kids will get them to listen to me. You know, it's like, so prototyping at the very basic level is just, it's enlightened trial and error, really. Um, now, prototyping can get more advanced. You know, in engineers, when they think about prototypes, they often think about, you know, physical things but that perform some function. But 
that's kind of the noun. We're talking about the verb, proto, you know, prototype, to prototype the verb. Um, and so when we talk about bringing prototyping, a prototyping attitude into life, it's just really it's trying things on in a way, you know, saying, you know, um, what if I become the kind of person who shows up on time? Okay, we'll give it a week. See if that see if you like it. See if you like how it feels to exert the kind of effort that's required for you to show up on time. If you're the kind of person who never, you know, lets an email sit in your inbox for longer than 24 hours, great. See how it feels. You know, a lot of times we can live with this catastrophic expectation of things that it's going to, you know, if uh, if I do something then the world will collapse or and we just say find ways of testing that hypothesis rather than living in the fear of it, um, you know, for so long. So it could be as simple as, you know, one of the things that we do in the, uh, in the classes, we have students work on a relationship. And um, I remember a few, you know, over the, over the course of the Thanksgiving break, their assignment is to reinvent a relationship using behavior change. I remember a couple years ago, one of our students was a Russian woman who had kind of a little bit of a strange relationship with her, estranged, I should say, relationship with her mother. And the behavior that her uh, partner, her co-designer designed for her was basically to start a WhatsApp group not only with her mom, because she noticed that the conversations with her mom tended to go negative, because her mom really wanted her to move back to Moscow. So anytime she said anything positive about Silicon Valley, for example, her mom would refute, you know, with something negative because it. She thought that there was like an argument happening. So her designer said, "Hey, the behavior change. You know, if you know your ultimate goal is to um, shift the dynamic uh, in your relationship with your mom." What if you start a different kind of conversation? So it's a hypothesis. We don't know if it's going to work, and that's kind of that should be true of any prototype. You're not sure whether it's going to work. If you're sure it's going to work, it's probably not worth prototyping. But if you're sure it's going to work, it's probably a great thing to prototype because what prototyping does is reveal some flawed assumptions. Um, but so what this student did is they had this woman set up a Facebook group or a WhatsApp group rather with her mom and three close friends. And instead of posting updates to her, to her mom one-to-one, she posted updates on her life um, to this group. And they had this, and, and then they, she started texting it. And they said, hey, just send a photo and a caption every day for a week. And, you know, like one photo she sent was of the Pacific Ocean. And, and the, so the story goes, she sent this photo saying, oh, I love sunsets over the Pacific Ocean. It's amazing. And her mom responded to the group you know, none, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, the, the lake by our house is just as beautiful, honey, or something like that. And then the friend started saying, are you crazy? The Pacific Ocean's way better, all, all this stuff. Um, and it ended up turning what would have been, you know, between mother and daughter, this kind of adversarial or conflict-ridden uh, interchange. It ended up sparking some humor and some fun and some levity. And then her mom chimed in kind of saying, oh, you're right. The Pacific Ocean is much bigger. It's much more beautiful, you know. But all of a sudden, it's not – it just changed the dynamic, right? But the idea, is, the, the idea with the prototyping is just give things to try on a small scale. Um, you know, I think a lot of students especially think about their lives in these very long time horizons and the data gathering – is exceed is very 
it's kind of long time frames. And so with prototyping, the idea is if you can create a little bit of data at a fraction of the time and a fraction of the effort, it, you can you can proceed down a longer path with much more confidence. Can you share about a prototype that you've used in your own life to get you farther along the journey? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, we... Uh, <laughs> well, so I've got a six-year-old at home who is uh, learning to speak respectfully to uh, parents and adults, things like that. And um, so I said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna institute yes, ma'am points. So if you get, you know, if you say yes, ma'am, twenty times today, you're gonna get a prize at the end of the day." Um, that didn't work out very well. Um, I never, you know, I, we lose count. Nobody's keeping track. You know, the tendency for, you know, great inflation is enormous, you know, things like that. So that didn't work out very well. But then, you know, uh, I was traveling and before I left, actually, I said, Hey, I want to, every day when I talk to you, I want to hear about one thing that made you laugh or one funny thing, you know, something like that. And it was amazing every day I would forget but she would say, Daddy, we got to do our funny thing. And I had to tell her something funny, and she had to tell me something funny. And it's just, um, it was really delightful. And, you know, whereas in the past it's been a little bit of a labored, obviously, I mean, with a six-year-old, there's only so much conversation you can have. Um, but in the past it's been kind of like she doesn't really have anything to say. She was actually looking forward to talking because she always had a funny thing that she wanted to tell me about, you know, and then we've done a kind story and, uh, you know, all sorts of stories since then. But I think the, the attitude of prototyping is the thoughtfulness about if there is a challenge, what can I try to make some headway against it? Because I could just say, and, and then almost, and then an attitude of gathering data, so to speak, to see whether my attempt is working. It's just formalizing what is otherwise pretty intuitive, but the problem with the intuitive is a lot of times we don't really in, uh, attend to it sufficiently. So it's almost prototyping, the way, the way I would think about it, is it's adding a little bit more attention to what Otherwise, it's probably pretty intuitive, but left to intuition will not yield the kind of information you need to make meaningful change. So for me, um, it's always a struggle to think about how do I connect with my kids, um, but, but if I'm just you know, uh, kind of willy-nilly responding, I can end up kind of consistently disappointed because my efforts aren't really thoughtful. If I start with the premise of, okay, last trip was rough. This trip I want to be better. What can I try to affect a different dynamic when I'm on my phone calls with my family when I'm traveling? Even just getting a little bit articulate about that question, I think is probably like a couple of the turns, a couple of turns of the screw farther than I would ordinarily get, right? And then stating a hypothesis: what if I tried this, or, or selecting kind of a handful of experiments I'm going to run, and then at the end going, okay, did it work? Yes, man, points were really good, but wow, funny stories were great, right? Just kind of reflecting on it really helps. So it's, it's almost the language of design thinking is almost giving titles to things that effective and successful people uh, probably do well anyway, but it just gives you a little bit of vocabulary for doing it if it's not your default. 
And your, your class, your transformative design class invites and requires really students to practice empathy and self-examination and to entice those, those feelings and those practices. I'm curious, what kinds of questions are you asking students when you're inviting them into self-examination, for instance, like what are some of the guiding questions that you're asking as a premise for the class? Well, the class itself is actually broken down into different projects. Um, so there aren't kind of necessarily overarching questions, but there are different questions for different topics. For example, is there, when you think about who you want to be, is there something that you're doing that you wish you didn't do? You know, that's like kind of a micro question. And then we can treat as a design project, how do you get rid of this thing that's keeping you from being who you'd like to be? And then we're going to be behavior modifications that are needed or attitude changes or things like that. You know, one of the exercises that's really impactful to students we do early on is we have them uh, write a eulogy of their own life. So they actually have to write a eulogy that someone who may be speaking at their funeral, they can either choose to, you know, die now or what they hope to be said at the end of their life. And if they, if they choose to die now, the goal is to write a very honest eulogy and then talk about... Is that disappointing to you? Do you wish that there might be more to say? Do you wish they might say something differently? You know, and then, or if it's at the end of the life, oftentimes that's very aspirational. And then, it, and then it can be, okay, well, how do we get there? And what's the difference between how you're living now and what you hope will be said of you by the time you die? Um, so that's really impactful. Then we also do a handful of what we call self-discovery missions, which are basically assignments that kind of put students into the world with a particular frame of examination or a frame of uh, inquiry. So, for example, one of the assignments is uh, something to the effect of, what does this place that I love know about me that I don't? So, one of the things that you can do is you go, what's a place that I love going to, but I'm not really sure why? Um, or maybe I am, maybe I think I know why, but I want to go there almost like an alien who's never seen the place before. And I want to observe people in this space and I want to see what this place knows about them and see what that tells me about me. So for example, um, I, you know, just like for fun, I one time went to the store, Urban Outfitters. Okay. It's fun, you know, kind of kitschy clothing store. And I was standing there and I'm looking around and I happen to notice this lady with kind of, you know, purple hair, digging, kind of scrounging, hands and knees in these bins looking for something. And my first thought, you know, is from a business perspective, man, the merchandising in here stinks. You know, the, no customer should be on her hands and knees looking for something. It's clearly taking a lot of work and all this stuff. Um, but when I think, okay, what do they know about her? Supposing it was designed, well, I have no idea, you know, whether it was designed or not, but supposing it was designed, what do they know about her? And when I ask that question, I go, oh, they know she wants a treasure hunt. They know she wants to leave this store feeling like she's the only person who could have found that thing she found. And that it's not so well merchandised that everybody there is pro like all of her friends are probably going to get it too. And then I go, okay, what does that tell me about me? Wow, I really want to feel unique, or I really want to feel like I found a great deal, or like I got the last one, or you know, whatever it is, right? But so, you see, so there's kind of different frames that you can take into the world with this question, 
you can learn something about yourself. So we do that. We, we, have, a, we have students um, interview someone who dislikes them to understand why, why they dislike them. We have them. Um, you know, what kind of stories that. come from that? Pra- that seems like that's got to be a challenging assignment. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times they come back saying, wow, I never knew that, you know, fill in the blank little moment that they easily write off affected them that way. You know, so many times the, the effort that it actually takes to repair a relationship or to repair, uh, you know, a perception is so much smaller than they ever knew and think in relationships that they just written off as lost actually pretty easily reparable with a little bit of attention. Hmm. And I, I, I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about as you're sharing is as followers of Christ, you know, you and I both love Jesus and are approaching our, you know, the world with a Christian worldview. What does it look like to navigate the intersection of design thinking and faith uh, especially as it relates to using these design thinking principles to structure to structure our lives and to invite other people to structure their lives as well. I mean, I think the first and foremost thing is everything has to be subjected to Christ. Every, you know, what does Paul say in Second Corinthians? I think it's chapter five. He says we're we're destroying every lofty thing and speculation that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. I think I'm just looking to see maybe second Corinthians 10. Yeah. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive, the obedience of Christ. So I'd say any worldview, any problem solving methodology, any approach has to be subjected to the obedience of, and, and taken captive to the obedience of Christ. So, that's the first thing is it's not about an intersection. It's about an utter subjection. Um, and so for me, my dominant worldview, my dominant reality is not design thinking. It's, it's maybe helpful. It may be useful. It's, you know, valuable in the marketplace. But when I'm thinking about my life, the question's not design thinking. The question, you know, rarely every once in a while, a design thinking tool or mindset is useful, but my ultimate goal is to be well-pleasing to the Lord. You know, Paul says, whether we're at home or in the body or, or, or sorry, whether we're at home in heaven or absent in the body, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to God. And, um, so for me, the first thing is always, what does the Lord say about something? And what the Lord says, if, if the Lord has a clear statement about something, it doesn't matter what any other mindset or perspective or framework says. And I would say further that, uh, the design thinking is all about uh, action and, you know, bias towards action. And there is reflection mixed in there, but it really is. It's a process of almost creating data through prototyping, uh, data from which I can make deductive decisions. But I would say as it pertains to our lives of faith, uh, we we treasure different things. You know, it says of Jesus in Isaiah, I think, 11, right, the prophecy, it says, um, he will not judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, but he, with righteousness he'll judge. And it says in Isaiah 42, who's so blind but my servant, the Lord Jesus. And so for me, 
you know, design thinking ultimately is a, is a sensory experience. It's a way of knowing the world. And Christianity is not a way of knowing the world. It's a way of knowing God. And um, so the intersection there, every once in a while, they, they, you know, there's maybe overlap or different things like that. But for me, what the Lord says is what matters most. And, you know, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So when somebody has a question about how do I sell some more stuff, uh, or make a you know, better thing. Sure, design thinking is great, and that's useful. But when I'm thinking about my life and how do I live in the world in a, way, in a manner that's pleasing to God, the Bible has to be my guide. You know, I'm not pulling out any design book or anything like that. What matters to me is what the Lord says. What matters to me is what godly counsel says and people who I admire. You know, in Philippians 3, Paul says, uh, you know, Follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have among us. I think Psalm 16 says, I've made the godly ones in the earth my heroes. And so to me, as it pertains living a life before God, you know, I'm going to read a, I mean, definitely the Bible, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to study the life of Jesus, life of the apostles. Um, I'm going to study the scriptures. If I, if I need, you know, instruction beyond that, I'm going to look at godly men and women who've lived, you know, missionaries and, and you know, folks like C.T. Studd, Hudson Taylor, D.L. Moody, you know, John Wesley, Andrew Murray, A.W. Tozer. Those are the, those are my sources. Now, as it pertains secular, uh, you know, considerations and things like that, then I will, you know, I, I can use obviously any tools that I think are appropriate. But even as it pertains building the church, I'm very reluctant to bring design thinking uh, to bear on it. I mean, I think that, you know, people ask me about that sometimes, like, oh, how can we bring in design thinking? It's not that we can't, but what what the church needs is to be radically submissive to the Lord. And most of the time, what leaders, le- what leaders need is not new formulas or new, new approaches, but the fear of God and, you know, brokenheartedness over sin and uh, utter yieldedness and surrender to him. And, you know, like I think about the uh, psalm, I was, just, I was just meditating on this psalm this morning in Psalm 16, he says, you will make known to me the path of life will. It's an unequivocal statement. Psalm 16, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life, but who can say that? Can any, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry say God will make known to me the path of life? I don't think so. Who can say it? In verse, it's, it's a Psalm 16 kind of person. You know, verse 1, I take refuge in you. Verse 2, I have no good but you. Verse 3, the saints are in the earth are the ones in whom is my delight. Verse 5, the Lord is my portion. Verse 6, I'm satisfied with what you've given me. Verse 7, you're instructing me day and night. Verse 8, I set the Lord continually before me. So who can say, verse 11, you'll make known to me the path of life, or how can I know? Is design thinking a way for me to know the path of life? No, for me, the Lord is the way to know it. But how can I confidently say that he will make known to me? I mean, I think verse 8, Psalm 16, verse 8 is a great verse for that. I have set the Lord continually before me. So how can I know the path of life? How can I be sure he'll make known? If if I haven't made a habit of only coming to him when I need an answer. What the psalmist says is, I have set the Lord continually before me. 
when I need something and when I don't need something. He's always with me. I'm always, and I'm not just looking to him when I have a question. I'm listening to him when he has direction. And a lot of people say, dude, I want to know the will of God. I want to know God's will. And I say, if you want to know God's will, do God's will. Obey him. Because many times what I find is the path gets cloudy when I'm not obeying what I already know. But as I walk with the Lord and as I'm obeying him, I find that he always makes the path clear. He always illuminates the path. Isaiah 30, I think, says, your ears will hear a voice from behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And but that's, that's for the person who is always walking with the Lord and always listening to his voice. And that comes... Um, not just in the moment of decision or the moment of need, but that comes in a daily lifestyle. You know, I, I think about like the time that Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he comes down and the disciples are being kind of rebuked because they can't cast out this demon and Jesus casts it out. And then the disciples say, dude, why couldn't we cast it out? And he says, this kind of only comes out by prayer and fasting. You know, you go, okay, Lord, were you thinking that these guys were going to fast you know, in the 10 minutes between when they came to meet this demon? No, definitely not. He's saying it comes out by a lifestyle of prayer and fasting, meaning there's a, light, a sense in which our lifestyle of prayer and fasting is in preparation for the challenges and trials and decisions that are to come. And if we're only praying, you know, for a present need, um, or the present question on our minds, then then we may not be making you know deposits. Like I think about it almost like you go to a store and you're uh, you know you get to the cash register and they say that'll be fifteen forty two and you can slap your pockets and go oh no I left my wallet. It's like a lot of times spiritually speaking we can have insufficient funds so to speak or we can realize oh no I left my wallet at home. What's the problem? It's not because in that moment. We don't have access to the Lord. It's because we haven't been lit. We haven't. So this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. It's, it's that lifestyle of depending on the Lord, you know, in the times of ease. It's, it's, uh, what does it say? Be all, you know, what are those who are at ease in Zion? You know, ease, we tend to ease up on seeking the Lord. But I find that for me, so important to seek Him in times of peace. And I find that many times when I get into the time of difficulty, he's actually already provided if, I, um, if I've if i been faithful. So all that say, if I think about where design thinking and my faith intersect, it's not, there's not a lot of intersection. I mean, there's a, as I said, there's a subjection. But what what guides my life is, I'm not a design thinker, first and foremost. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a disciple. And design thinking, it's, it's, it is to me what tent making was to Paul. It's like a useful tool to, um, I mean, we live in the world. We have to have, you know, er, you know income to um, provide for our families and things like that. But it's uh, ultimately, it's just a tool in, that the Lord has provided to um, earn and to, you know, to help people that I come across. But my faith is the absolutely the primary determinant in any certainly any major decision I'm gonna make in life. If I'm gonna, if I'm trying to decide whether I'm gonna you know, whether it's buy a house or have a child or adopt a child or, you know, attend some church, that's not those those things aren't design thinking questions. Those things are what does the Lord say? Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome. I have just two more questions for you in in the 
first one is just about practically in your own life. What is, what is one habit that you have put in place that you practice regularly to make progress on something that you really care about? Um, I would say, so, I mean, definitely reading the Bible, spending time in prayer. What does that look like would, in your life? What does reading the Bible and spending time in prayer mean for you? Yeah. Well, I was going to, I was going to say that's almost like a given. I was going to actually give a different, or I was going to, I was going to give a different answer, but I mean, that, that's, that's the cornerstone of my life. Um, and I really, uh, I, I, since, since the time my kids were born, I realized if I want to have any kind of time with the Lord, that's, that's, um, peaceful. I basically, I have to get up before my kids do. I, I think my daughter was four months old when I realized, man, my life is not going the way I want it to. And the reason was, I don't think I had read my Bible in the four, in the first four months of her life. So I was just wiped, you know, I'm responding to a baby's needs, all that. And I thank God that it only took four months of that misery before I, you know, woke up literally and started getting up earlier, which so that's a, a huge change for me. Um, so I'm kind of always reading through the Bible and, and, you know, praying about the things that the Lord is teaching there. I mean, for me, when I read the Bible, I mean, just one thing I'll say about reading the Bible before I can go to the other, or the other thing I was thinking about, which is more funny and practical. But um, I always want to read the Bible to obey. You know, it's not for, it's not to gain knowledge. It's to, it's to gain light on my path. So I don't think it's random why the, you know, portions of my daily reading have been allotted to me. I think the Lord, who's absolutely sovereign, knows what I'm going through, knows the questions in my heart, knows the things I'm dealing with, and has divinely ordained the reading that I've got for that day to address those things. And as I as I come to the Lord with need, He speaks to me, you know, every day in the things that I read. I find that any time I, if I don't come with need, then I leave with knowledge. But if I, if I come in need, then I leave with life. And for me, you know, Jesus, I remember really being strongly corrected by the Lord one time where, because ordinarily I'll start reading it at, you know, a chapter, you know, and I like to have the context and understand where we are and things like that. So chapter breaks are kind of good. I mean, those are man-made, but, you know, it's just natural to start there. But one time I opened up my Bible to where I was going and I just kind of fumbled onto a passage where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And ordinarily I'd see this and go, oh, yeah, the Pharisees deserve that. But here I wasn't, I didn't have the context because I think the chapter heading was on the previous page. So I just saw just first thing on the page, it says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life and you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And for the first time I read that, it wasn't a word to the Pharisees. It was a word to me. Wow. Um, that, and I realized, wow, I do. You're right, Lord. And I never thought it was possible to, to come to the scriptures and yet refuse Jesus. I never, it never even dawned on me. I say, if I'm reading the scriptures, I must be coming to Jesus. And yet Jesus' rebuke was, no, you come to the scriptures and refuse to come to me. And so for me, I think that I've always taken that to heart as I read the Bible. When I come to the scriptures, I want to come to Jesus. I want to, and what does he want me to, he wants to speak to me. You know, in Isaiah um, chapter 54, I think he says, You waken me morning by morning to listen as a disciple. 
And I was not disobedient. I didn't turn back. And I see there that the Lord, the way the Lord woke up every day is he woke up to listen. And not as a scribe and not as a student, but as a disciple, as a follower. And he says, and I wasn't disobedient, meaning I obeyed what you spoke. And I say for me, morning by morning when I wake up, I want to have the attitude of, Lord, I want to obey you. Not I want to know something about you, but I want to obey you. So that's one thing. And then the, the second thing on that is... Um, rejecting my mind. You know, it's easy to come to the scriptures with an intellectual approach or, or with a certain level of experience. Like, I've read these things before. I kind of know what this passage means. But I find that that's really the surest way to not get any, you know, new light from a passage is to think I already know it. And so for me, I try. I, I can't say I do it all the time, but as often as I remember, as often as it's authentic, I try to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to set aside my mind here. I don't want to be instructed by my mind. I don't want to be, and I, I want to set aside my experience too. I don't want to think I already know what this passage means. I want your Holy Spirit to illuminate these pages and to touch my heart and to speak to me afresh as if I'm reading these things for the first time. And I want to, I want, you know, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. You've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligence, but you reveal them to babes. And I say, Lord, I'm in a, I'm at a loss because I I, you, I have some in some sense some wisdom and some intelligence and I know that there are some things that are hidden from those who come to the scriptures as one who's wise or intelligent but if I come as a babe you know in humility in helplessness and in, in dependence upon the Lord then He gives me what I need so for me that's those are a couple really uh, important things to bear in mind always I want to come to obey not to learn but to obey and I want to come um, in humility as a as a child not not with all my ideas and all my knowledge and all my experience but just as a as a child I want to you know Paul said whatever things were gained to me these things I count as loss and I say, man, my, my intellect for sure in this world is a gain to me, but I want to count it. You know, what does it mean when he says I count it as a loss? It's like I almost picture in accounting, moving something from the assets column to the liability column. It's no longer, no, not only is it not an asset to me, it's actually a liability. I count it as a loss. I say, Lord, this intellect, if not brought under subjection to the Holy Spirit, it's actually going to keep me from knowing you. Wow. But the uh, so that so that's that's on like the you know spiritual front, and that to me is that's the cornerstone of my life. <clears throat> um, I've become a stickler for you know getting to bed at a reasonable hour, mostly because I see the impact that really spending time in the in the scriptures has on my life. But I would say that beyond that, when you, when you asked the question, I was trying to think of an answer besides the kind of Sunday school answer of reading my Bible and pray. And one thing that's been fun for us as a uh, family is the concept of do-overs. Um, because with kids, you know, it's like, okay, how do we discipline? What's the right way to do? Does, does every, you know, infraction deserve a consequence of some kind? It can be kind of don't know what to do as a parent. I know this is uh, something everybody wrestles with. And anyway, the concept of a do-over has been really wonderful in our family because it helps us with so many things. It's like the the problem is there's it's not really malice or rebellion. It's just 
you know, we're out of practice with the right things. You know, it takes time to practice. And so, you know, if, if somebody's having a hard time remembering something, just with a gentle, you know, word, just say, let's have a do-over. It's okay. Like, don't, you know, you're not in trouble, but we're going to do over again. Okay, you go back through the door. Now, remember, let's not slam it this time, you know, or whatever. And what's cool about that language of a do-over is, you know, daddy needs do-overs too. And, like, the other day I was talking with my four-year-old, and I said something, kind of, you know, I was a little curt because we are trying to get out the door. And, um, and she, she said, Daddy, that wasn't very nice. And I said, well, you're right. I said, you're, it's because you're disobeying. She said, but it wasn't nice. And I said, okay, can I have a do-over? And she said, sure. So I said, okay, you disobey me again. I was telling her to, like, you know, sit down and put on her shoes. I said, you disobey me. Start running around. So she started running around, and I said, um, excuse me, sweetheart, would you mind if you, to put on your shoes, please? And she goes, that was much better, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's and awesome. so that, for me, I, like that language of a do-over, I mean, the thing is, I want to be a, the kind of father my, that my heavenly father is to me. And, you know, I can't tell you, he's, the Lord has never, when I've messed up, he's never said to me, how many times have I told you, you know, ever. And if I examine my own fathering, I see, man, there's, there's so much roughness. There's so much, Jesus said, learn gentleness from me. Uh, in Matthew 11, I think verse 29. And so for me, what I see is I really want to learn gentleness from Jesus um, as it pertains to my parenting. I want to see all irritability as uh, unchristlikeness because I I truly believe that it is unchristlike. And sin is falling short of the glory of God. And the glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So sin is coming short of Christ-likeness. And there I see in my home especially how much sin there is in me that I that has just never been um, identified. And I see things like a do-over as not only a really helpful practice to preserve a sense of gentleness towards my children, but also it's reminded me of, you know, how loving the Lord is, how gentle He is with me, and, and it's given me a chance to admit my mistakes to my kids in a fun way to make it right with them. Mm. Wow. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for all of that. And for, for your time, the last and final question is, is just how, how people can stay connected to you, get to know your work. Um, just anything you want to share about how people can, can get in touch with you. Um, let's see. I'm not really on social media. Um, unfortunately, um, somebody wants to get in touch, you know, you can give them my number. That's fine. Um, or our church, uh, our church website is nccf.church. That is an extension, actually. nccf.church stands for New Covenant Christian Fellowship. And um, every once in a while, we'll post blogs there um, and videos of messages. So I, I typically end up sharing at our church kind of every other week or so. And we have a YouTube channel, so they post our messages and things like that. So that's probably the from a definitely from a spiritual perspective, that's the best way to stay in touch. Um, and then you know, from like a design thinking perspective, um, you know, we're always publishing stuff on the D Schools website. So um, you folks can just check out dschool.stanford.edu, and there's all sorts of new materials up there on a regular basis. 
Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Values Driven Productivity Podcast. If you'd like to see any resources or links to things mentioned in the show, visit the episode page at valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show almost anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have a spare moment, please leave the show a review on iTunes. I'd love to hear your feedback and it's a great way to help other people find the show. Also, you can join the email list at valuesdrivenproductivity.com slash subscribe. When you sign up, you'll immediately get 100 questions that you can use to start meaningful conversations with people in your life. Well, that just about does it. Thanks for listening to the show. Until next time, make meaningful progress on things that matter. When all is lost and the world is losing too, oh, oh, hope is all.